0: as a small company in my opinion you don't need big thinking you need great execution Mm -hmm. as you get to a point where you've had proof of concept maybe then you bring on a bigger agency or a more powerful person that can be a little more strategic Mm -hmm. and i'm not saying no strategy but i'm certainly saying execution initially is absolutely critical
1: ladies and gentlemen welcome to the ecom growth show do i say hi now or do i wait i'm pretty much brain fried at this point Let's go. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Ecom Growth Show with Robbie Switzer and Daniel Stafford. Guys, joined with us today is Dustin Finkel, and he is a natural foods and CPG leader. So Dustin started his food career at General Mills, where he led a team to transition Czech cereal to gluten-free, the first national gluten-free product from a multinational CPG. From there, he has held several roles that required both building and turning around brands businesses through consumer insights, speed of execution, and entrepreneurial thinking, including White Wave Foods, Famous Brands, Abbott Nutrition, and leading multinational foods companies. As a leader at White Wave, now Danone Wave, I hope I said that right, he turned Horizon Organic from a commodity milk brand into the leading milk brand in the world. At Famous Brands, he introduced strategic licensing, leading to the two best launches in company history, including the first plant-based vegan frozen yogurt in partnership with Silk Almond Milk. Dustin, Dang. <laughs> that's impressive, dude. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I really
0: appreciate it. I need to record you guys doing my intro so I can just you know have that walking with me everywhere I go but, <laughs> yeah no, just a real confidence for boost totally. me so, and for those watching you can kind of see my visual resume behind me here on my shelf but these are a lot of the brands that uh they like to throw my face on these brands that if I leave I don't know say get rid of me but it's uh <laughs> it's nice to be there
2: dude I like how you're taking like uh mainstream unhealthy things and kind of making them healthy mm-hmm. is that kind of what I'm getting here
0: You know, it's interesting. I don't know if that was initially by design, but I think I got very lucky in my career. When I was joining General Mills, they actually have you fill out a form. So what kind of brands do you want to work on? And I said, you know, I don't really care, but I'm very passionate about health and wellness. Mm -hmm. And actually the first brand I worked on at General Mills was a tiny brand called Eighth Continent, which is back here. And it was a joint venture soy milk with another company. And we were the second largest soy milk. But to give you an idea at that time in 2006 or seven, we had a 8 percent market share as the second largest silk had 80 percent market share so mm-hmm. it's a very big uh difference Dang. in skill set but i was off-site from the big general mills area it's very entrepreneurial and then i went from that to big g which is the cereal division at general mills and went to work on checks and did some cool things there and again kind of stumbled into this gluten-free idea mm-hmm. um, which we can talk about but was a tremendous change in how i thought about health and wellness And ultimately, yeah, shaped my career. I was able to match what I personally love, which I'm a CrossFit trainer, a personal trainer, nutritionist, into the CPG aspect. And as I got further in my career, it absolutely was tactical. Mm -hmm. I think early on, I just got very lucky to be exposed to some amazing launches in the health and wellness space.
1: Yeah, that's so awesome. So when you're talking about really taking a brand that people already have their ideas of what this brand represents what it's supposed to look like what it represents and now you're actually taking that using that as a foundation but but actually changing it and reintroducing it to the market how do you even start that process how do you go about you know taking something that has existed and has its you know all these ideas associated with it and just relaunching it and not just relaunching it but doing that wildly successfully
0: Great question, a few examples, but number one, I will start with it has to resonate with the target. So I I teach an adjunct course at CU, University of Colorado Boulder. And the first thing I start with every class is it begins and ends with the target. Mm -hmm. Everything you do has to do with the target. So famous brands was Mrs. Fields and TCBY. If I went in and took Mrs. Fields cookies, and like we're gonna make these healthy cookies, especially at that time, that would have failed. Mm -hmm. TCBY on the other hand, which is a frozen yogurt based product, Mm Yogurt has health connotation. So how do we kind of leverage what people are going to frozen yogurt for, which is typically I want a better version of ice cream. Yeah. Well, there is a health connotation there. We partnered with Silk, launched the first vegan plant-based frozen yogurt, as you mentioned. And so that's kind of how you take a brand and you take elements that resonate with the target already, and then you see how far you can push that. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. there's also examples where that doesn't work. When I was at Abbott, I was running a brand called Zone Perfect. And Zone Perfect is a basically a healthy candy bar-esque product, you know, high protein, soy isolate. We wanted to go after the kind market. There was no way we could do that with the architecture and targeting that Zone Perfect had. We launched the first new brand in Abbott history in 17 years called Curate because we had to differentiate who the target was, the branding, et cetera. So you can't always do that, but if there is target resonance with where you want to go, it can work. And I'm a big believer for those marketing geeks out there of the four P's. Everything begins and ends with the four piece price, promotion, product, and placement. Mm-hmm. Everything can be solved in that, but it all circles around the target mm-hmm. and that's where it begins and ends. And so ultimately you have to make sure that your target's ready for something like that. And just as a quick aside, one of my favorite slides when I teach at CU are the products that failed.
1: Yeah. For yeah.
0: the exact reason I'm talking about. So for instance, Colgate, the, the toothpaste launched Colgate frozen meals. Those did not do that well. For <laughs> an obvious reasons, um, there's a bunch of o- other examples that are hysterical because, again, the target market, the branding, did not represent what worked for that particular product uh, innovation cycle. That yeah, makes
2: sense, dude. Do you care if I if we rewind just a minute? I'm just curious about Dustin's story. What made you so entrepreneurial? Were you always like this, or is it something later in life you began became- to become passionate about or what did your like entrepreneurial journey look like? Uh, what was the yeah. first early beginning stages of that?
0: <laughs> you know, I am I am not the entrepreneur in residence type of guy, right? I'm in a group with a lot of guys and, and women who are just entrepreneurs and I have so much envy for what they are and who they are. I'm the complete opposite. I started at Goldman Sachs, you know, the biggest investment bank, went to General Mills, you know, one of the biggest CPGs. But what I had excitement for was really impacting companies. And through some luck and good fortune, I ended up at these companies where I was able to be entrepreneurial, mm-hmm. but within the construct of the safety net of a bigger company and investment. Yeah. So Eighth Continent, as an example, General Mills, or even famous brands, we saw large private equity behind us when we were at the time. And so you could be entrepreneurial, but there wasn't that risk of like, if I fail, wow, look at all these people I let down, kind of like I right. feel in my current <laughs> job. And so ultimately, one of the funny things was I ended up going smaller and smaller in companies and running other people's brands. And was like, God, I'm really good at helping you be better at your brand. Mm -hmm. And people kept saying, why don't you start your own company? And I was like, I just don't have a good idea. I'm not an idea guy. I can take your brand and make it better, but I'm not an idea guy. And I stumbled upon the idea for Kapop. I mean, quite literally, despite my food background, I was like, huh, there's something here. And then I took that leap. But I also took that leap. In a way, that's both highly risk-averse, uh, but also fairly risky in that you know, I'm, I'm in the prime earning years of my life, so to speak. I walked away from these nice jobs to take a job where my boss, who's me, by the way, won't pay me a good salary, makes mm-hmm. me work too hard, and went that route. But at the same time, I also had 15 years of CPG experience when I started this. I kind of knew yeah. some of the landmines. I knew where to go for the partnerships. So I had that nice balance and maturity, yeah. whereas mm-hmm. I envy... And admire those people who walk into this world of food entrepreneurship or any entrepreneurship without experience and just like you know what, I'm going to do it because, man, those people are amazing to me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely amazing.
2: Yeah, but I like what the path that you did, too, because I think so many people put this pressure on them to be an entrepreneur without having any type of real world experience yeah. where, like people like you that went through kind of a career path gained all this experience and then it's like boom you launch pretty quickly and have a really good idea of where you want to go whereas a lot of people put this unnecessary pressure on them to figure it all out and fail for a long time which is all right too but a lot of them also end up just then going to a safe job so I really do appreciate your journey and kind of how you went about that
0: well, I will add, I, hey, thank you. I mean, one of the things that I, is a huge problem in our space are big company people wanting to go to startups. And I have this conversation with so many people on a monthly basis as I'm mentoring or giving advice. And there's a huge failure rate. In fact, one of the big private equity groups in our space has said there's a 95 to 98% failure rate for a big CBG person going to a startup. And that's wow. any side of startup. Because again, a startup is zero. A startup can be $20 million company. I mean, who defines what a startup really is? Yeah, There's a huge difference. I, again, got lucky in that I went from big to smaller to smaller to smaller to smaller to ultimately starting my own and, and really got to see the different tenets of that. And one person gave me advice, and this is one of the best pieces of advice I give to college students, is everyone expects your career to be linear. Mm-hmm. Right. I start here, I graduate college, mm-hmm. I go to this job, and we don't expect to stay in the same jobs anymore. That's kind of changed. But mm-hmm. you know, I go to this job, I get promoted, I go to the next job, I get promoted, and there's this path upward where the reality is it looks like this, you know, big <laughs> crazy circle. And if you look at my resume on paper, I would argue I have one of the best resumes there is, and I can just tell you why it's amazing and well thought out and great in actuality now that I can admit it. In actuality, a lot of it's luck, circumstance, stumbling, getting lucky in that I you know, left a job that I probably shouldn't have left but stumbled into a good experience. And yeah. um, I've just been very fortunate
1: in that. Mm, that's awesome. Dude, that's so awesome. Can I can I go back into the weeds again? Yeah, you go for <laughs> so it, dude. I, I uh, yeah, just, I'm so excited to be talking to you. And obviously uh, you just have like a ton of super valuable experience and we wanna extract some of that knowledge or some principles. But when you're like envisioning specifically on the marketing side and specifically in uh, with online channels, what are some of the biggest pitfalls you see when people are taking a brand to market? And, and specifically with the nuance of like what's happening online, that's kind of our audience here is everybody's kind of really amplifying the e-commerce side of their brand. So what are some of the biggest pitfalls you see with people taking brands to market?
0: And I'm a perfect case study for this because, <laughs> you know, I grew up in retail brick and mortar CPG, mm-hmm. right? So that was my experience and expertise, and it still is to a certain degree. I have to really surround myself with experts in ecom, e but I've learned quite a bit through a consistent level of failure and mistakes. You talk yeah. about the learnings I had, that's brick and mortar launching, marketing, all that kind of stuff. But going into e is very, very challenging. But before I go into specifics, I think it's important to talk about how the landscape has changed. Mm-hmm. And I have really strong beliefs about that. You know, ultimately people were going and growing shopping experiences for food, especially, but other CPG online. Amazon, it's actually one of the fastest growing categories ever on Amazon. Mm-hmm. You see it with people's Shopify sites. You see box companies, you see so many different aspects to buy. And that was growing. But then this thing, I don't know if you heard about it called COVID happened, (laughs) and it completely changed the landscape. And what I mean by that is it changed the adoption curve. So I believe people who would have never, or maybe in 10 years, gone to things like Instacart, Amazon to buy food website started doing that because either they were forced to, or felt more comfortable to because of the COVID situation and not wanting to leave the house. And that has significantly changed the adoption cycle of online shopping, online adoption, and frankly, how much more difficult it is for smaller companies to get noticed.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Instacart is built for big CPG companies. Break and click, where, you know, where you buy it from a Kroger type of product and drive there and pick it up, built for big CPG companies. How are companies like mine discovered? They're discovered through shopping, demos, trial, things like that. That's gone away or is minimized compared to where it mm-hmm. used to be. So the importance of e has was always growing, and then it went through you know, rocket-level growth because of COVID. So that really did fundamentally change how we all experienced and grow on e-com. Prior to March 2020, I would say 50% of my marketing spend was online and 50% of it was brick and mortar demos, things like that. And Mm. now it's, you know, probably 70, 80% of my marketing spend is online channels. And so the things I learned now going back to, I I think that was just an important setup. Go back to the tactical things I learned is number one, Amazon is one of the most challenging areas to understand and execute upon. And what I mean by that is it's constantly evolving and there's all these rules of the, of the trade and it's a full-time business. When I first got on, I had this arrogance maybe, or lack of understanding where I thought Amazon was as you put it on Amazon. It's going to sell. It's a full-time job. (laughs) And whether you bring that job in house or you outsource it, it's a full-time job and it's absolutely critical. It's the number one marketing vehicle you're going to have as a small company. In my opinion, bar none. And so as you think about marketing on there, efficiency, getting set up correctly, there's so many aspects to selling online that people don't think about. I sell air, basically I'm shipping air around the country. Mm -hmm. And one thing I didn't think about was dimensional weight versus real weight, Mm. the impact of that. So we had to, after launch, change our core size to go down a half inch, which would save us about 20% of our Amazon fees. The other implication, if you're under $15 versus over $15, significantly different fees from Amazon Mm -hmm. and all of these things you learn over time. But if you can have someone that's really expert at understanding those areas right up front, you're going to save yourself literally thousands and thousands of dollars of mistakes. Mm -hmm. Now, finding the right person has proven to be the hardest thing I would say in the Amazon space in that there are, it's constantly changing. It's relatively new. And there's a lot of claimed experts out there. And so just like anything else, I think this is an area of finding people who have done it for others and really understanding what you're getting and who you need at different times. As a small company, in my opinion, you don't need big thinking. You need great execution. Mm -hmm. As you get to a point where you've had proof of concept, maybe then you bring on a bigger agency or a more powerful person that can be a little more strategic. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying no strategy, but I'm certainly saying execution initially is absolutely critical. Making sure you're in stock, making sure you have the right case weight, making sure you're set up correctly, make sure your ads are running, all of those things. So that's kind of the Amazon bucket. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Moving on to Shopify or your website or whatever platform most people use Shopify these days. Mm -hmm. The benefit of your website is pure and simple, which is getting customers information. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing that maybe I'm older, but I would have think because I was older, I wouldn't have the same opinion. It blows me away by how powerful email marketing still is. Yeah,
1: yeah. totally. Absolutely
0: blows me away. Yeah, yep. I mean, when I first started my own company, I'm like, there's no way people respond to emails. I mean, I get, you know, 5,500 a day. Like, How are anyone responding to this? Totally, It's by far one of the best investments you can make from a digital marketing perspective. Yeah. And the reactions, the integration, the relationships are tremendous. And I still, to this day, don't get it, but who cares? It works <laughs> yeah. and people really respond to it. And so really understand your email flows. So, and, and I hope I'm not getting too tactical here, but things like if you're using Clavio or, or any of the different email platforms, you really want to make sure your email flows are correct. When are you sending them? What triggers an email? How often are you sending these emails? What are they saying? How are they ordered? Mm. Making sure you're doing A-B testing to really understand your audience is so, so critical. So ultimately, these are the most important areas to really focus on, in my opinion. The final thing I would say is, this is my opinion, right? There's this huge idea of Instagram and influencers. We have found that social media is very difficult to crack the nut because A, they're constantly changing. Mm -hmm. and be there's so much competition and yes if you can get you know kendall uh jenner uh, or anyone to you know talk about your product (laughs) awesome (laughs) but you know the the influencer market hasn't proven to be very effective for us Mm -hmm. versus really making sure that we get it in people's hands they review they're positive they share it with their friends so very long-winded answer, but I hope I give some context. Oh, no, dude, think. there's a ton of value dude, no, in there.
1: I, I love it because it's so, it's actually so opposite of what a lot of people say. You know, everyone says go, go to social media, go to paid social, go to influencers. But I love just like your whole tidbit on, you know, just proper execution at the beginning is going to be your biggest leverage point. Yeah, it's it's really good stuff, dude. Yeah, I have a question too. What, we get this
2: question a lot and I'm just curious how you view this. Do you have a percentage of budget that you allocate towards paid, meaning whether it's Google, social media, whatever paid marketing is for you, do you have a percentage you like to allocate towards that? And as you grow, that percentage grows or how do you look at that?
0: When you're a small company, at least for me coming from the bigger world, I wanted these sophisticated budgets and be able to go to marketing and say, we're doing this much and one of the hardest realities of being a small company is the non-working spend versus working spend. And for those of you who don't know what that means, it means working spend is the dollars that actually end up showing in front of a consumer, whereas non-working spend are things like agency costs and all the stuff you have to do behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And in a big company, you're always like, "I want working spend to be 80% of my budget." Well, a small company, non-working is like 80% of your budget, right? Because of just size of mm-hmm. business and size That's of a good price, point, and yeah. so it's really hard to allocate specific dollars but what we try and do is follow what's working so i'm a big fan of really testing a lot of different areas it does not take that much money to see if a particular opportunity works Mm -hmm. i will answer a slightly different question though and, and i have this argument this is probably different than what a lot of people say also Maybe mm-hmm. I'm being the antagonist here but feel these <laughs> ideas know. of ROAS and all these cool terms of uh-huh. like return on ad spend and and what I find is that's obviously important but you know what's more important is actually selling units and I find <laughs> a lot of agencies, <laughs> I find a lot of agencies and people get so hung up on lowering ROAS or inc- I guess increasing ROAS and making sure that the return's better and they're doing these testing Again, you're there to sell product. And so there is a point at which the two almost start fighting each other. And we found that inadvertently with our business, where if you run it with a P and L mindset, which is something I'm always preaching and happy to get into. The number one driver is P and L. I mean, sorry, the number one driver is sales. So sell, sell, sell. That's absolutely critical as a small company. All these other things don't matter. You need to sell products. You need mm-hmm. to get it into people's hands. You need to get repeat. And that's why that's so, so critical. And I think, again, if you focus on the key drivers versus getting hung up on all these cool terms, that's really going to work for you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Dude, that's so good. We, we've been hammering,
2: trying to hammer that <laughs> home the last uh, year, it feels like. But uh, it's cool to hear your perspective on it. And you said, uh, l- viewing it through the p could you... Could you dive into that a little bit?
0: Absolutely. So this is this is my this is me preaching from the soapbox, and I always teach it at CU, and no one wants to hear about it. But the reality is, everything begins and ends with two parts of your business: the P and L and the cash flow statement. Mm-hmm. That's it. You know, balance sheet's important, I guess, but not really. And all these other aspects don't really matter. Cash flow is important because guess what? Uh, news alert if you run out of cash you're out of business so <laughs> hey pay attention to that stuff but if you look at your PL it tells every bit of the story you could possibly want. So let's start at the top and I'm not going to give you the full hour lecture. Well let's start at the top mm-hmm. which is sales. Yeah. Sales bring money into the company, right? Yeah. And so if that number is not going in the right direction, there is a lot of areas to search. That's actually where the four Ps make probably the most impact is on the sales line. But it tells a story. So you break out your sales by e-comm, wholesale, retail, Amazon, Shopify, however you want to break it up, but make sure you can understand the trends that are driving your business forward. The next bucket trade, which is all the discounts that you're putting into your business. Okay. I sold a hundred million dollars worth of product, but I discounted $90 million back. That's not good. Right. (laughs) And so net sales, if you look at the multiples of sales, so how companies like mine are bought, it's bought off multiples of net sales, not gross sales, i can go out and sell all day long if i'm like hey i'm gonna sell to you for five bucks and i'm gonna refund you 490 which is essentially what trade is so being smart about how you allocate trade and looking at those trends what the percentages is uh etc the next big bucket is cogs cost of goods sold same type of thing how much am i spending the biggest thing you will hear from vcs and private equities and this i hear this so often is a small company will come in and they'll say. You know my gross margin, which is basically COGS as a percentage of your sales. My gross margin is thirty percent or twenty percent, but you know it with some efficiencies and growth, I'll be at sixty percent. You know how often that happens? Like zero. <laughs> so if you don't build your business from day one to be gross margin effective, and granted there are efficiencies as you get bigger, but not as much as people think. People mm-hmm, expect yeah. this to double or triple. If you don't build for gross margin. How are you going to pay for marketing and sales and operations and sgna and all those things so, so that's the second one and so on and so forth so if you go through each of these lines whether it's marketing or uh, logistics if you understand the trends that are happening in each one of those line items you will know everything that's happening in your business you may not know all the tactical execution pieces but now i can look at my PL and say you know something doesn't look right there Mm-hmm. I'm going to go talk to the head of operations and figure out if there's something in there we need to dig into. And in mm-hmm. fact, that just recently happened where I was going through personnel hires and pounds per uh, pounds of output that we were making. And I realized like things didn't make sense. We dug in and found some inconsistencies that we had to fix all because of the P&L. So...
1: Man, that's so good. And that is good. Well, technically, we're supposed to be wrapping up here, but man, I just want to <laughs> keep, uh, I keep me having me. questions. Yeah, my biggest question is like, do you do any type of brand consulting type <laughs> type of work?
0: <laughs> I uh, personally, I you know, actually, it's funny. My favorite thing to do still is helping other companies. It's by far my favorite thing to do. And so, when I left Abbott Nutrition, I stumbled into these jobs where I would go into small companies for. Three months as a CEO or COO or CCO or CMO or whatever C level nonsense they wanted to put me in, <laughs> and I got this chance to work with so many different companies. And now I serve as an advisor or consultant to a handful of companies. You know, my my life is pretty overwhelmingly busy, but I, I it's actually so much easier for me still to look at someone else's company and diagnose what needs to happen in an hour versus my own company. Mm, totally. And I used to really wonder why that was. And everyone thinks they have the obvious answer. Well, you're in the company. I don't think that it's as obvious as people think. Not only are you not seeing the tree through the, the forest through the trees or whatever the expression is, but there's the emotional tie. There's the emotional component to having your own company. There's the constant stress of cash flow and raising money. There's so many distractions that prevent me from approaching my company the same way I could approach your company. Mm-hmm. And so I get a lot of joy. And the second reason it's a bit more altruistic, I guess, which is I was so fortunate to have so many people help me along the way. Mm-hmm. And what I will tell you about the Boulder, at least the Boulder Natural Foods world, and I think this extends to Chicago and some other places, is that it, everyone is so willing to help everyone. Mm-hmm. And so I had so much help getting to where I'm at today that this is my way of, of kind of quote unquote giving back. Even teaching at CU is trust me, it does not pay well. And it takes <laughs> yeah. up a lot of time. Yeah. So I really do enjoy the opportunity to give back and try and teach people what has helped me and my company be successful. And um, I really, really enjoy doing that.
1: Yeah, man. Well, I feel like just so, so grateful. <laughs> this has been an amazing, amazing chat and just, yeah. So much, so much insights and knowledge and yeah. just, just wisdom, you know, from, from your experience. Oh, so thank you so much for sharing that with us. And how can, uh, you know, how can the audience reciprocate some value back to you? Is there any way that anywhere they can go, uh, purchase your products or what's the best way It'll for people here. to get in touch with you?
0: I'll give you the same spill when I'm demoing, which I still love to do by the way. And as an aside, best way to learn about your business is by demoing, but people will say like, good luck. And I'm like, you know what will help my luck? Uh, you buying more of my product. <laughs> so, uh, I, uh, I will tell your audience the same thing. We um, You can find us at kapopsnacks.com. Uh, my other brand that we now have is Bubba's Fine Foods or bubbasfoods.com, which is a keto, grain-free, paleo, uh, granolas, and snack mixes, and freaking awesome. Um, and if you need co-manufacturing, we do Awaken Food Crafters as well, which is, uh, I believe, Awakened Food So you know, love to help. And if anyone has questions, you know, I'm more than happy to to help reach out and give back. And I appreciate the opportunity to join you guys.
1: Yeah, man. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining. All right, ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed uh, what you heard today, definitely go buy some products from Dustin and then uh, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast, share it with somebody, and we'll catch you next time. See you guys.